John Loughborough was given special instruction before evangelistic work in California. He was one that was sent to open up the work there in California, um, landing at San Francisco and then starting the um, evangelistic outreach in Petaluma and other places. And by following the instruction, he had amazing success. He then neglected to utilize this method in England, and he had little fruit. Elder Washburn came and corrected the omission and had significantly different results. The secret was so important that a prophet re-emphasized it in the setting of setting up a mission work in Africa, and it was markedly affected when it was effective when it was utilized. But it's been often overlooked in the last century. God is a God of order and law. His principles are absolutely as dependable as physics. Like the laws of health, the laws of soul winning are not optional suggestions. When I finally begin to understand this law, I begin to look at life with new eyes and listening, listen with new ears. Satan utilizes this method very effectively. And uh, too often God's people don't. Luke 16.8 says, The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. This is such an important topic that we're going to be looking at that we need to open the uh, session with prayer. Can we bow our heads? Father in heaven, how grateful we are that you love us and that we can depend on you, that your instruction will give us success where today we might have failure without it. I pray that your, your spirit may be here guiding in what is said, guiding in how we hear. In Christ's name, amen. The secret, do not overlook working for the higher class because other classes seem easier to reach. God has placed the higher class of people within our reach so that we can improve our approach to all classes of people. Ellen White wrote to another missionary with advice much like her advice to Elder Loughborough, event, letter 12, 1887, there has been much loss through following the mistaken ideas of our good brethren whose plans were, what's that word? Narrow. Narrow. And they lowered the work to their peculiar ways and ideas so that the higher classes, what happened? They weren't reached. The appearance of the work impressed the minds of unbelievers as being of very little worth, some stray offshoot of a religious theory that was beneath their attention. Much has been lost for want of wise methods of labor. She continues, every effort should be made to give dignity and character to the work. Special efforts should be made to secure the goodwill of men in responsible positions 
without sacrificing one principal truth or righteousness. But, sacri- but by sacrificing, what are we to sacrifice? Our own ways and manner of approaching the people. Much more would be affected by using more tact and discretion in the presentation of truth. So what is God calling for in, uh, at the very start? What's the call for? Abandoning our own ways. All we as sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And God is calling for something higher, and he gives us the higher class as a test of our faithfulness to his way of reaching the people versus our own way. The soul-winning secret, be willing to adapt your approach to appeal to those in positions of leadership in the world. There was a very successful pastor, now deceased. He was trained by Elder George Vanneman with the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy's precise directions of effective outreach. Year after year, this pastor led the conference in baptisms, including numerous professionals, doctors, judges, bankers, uh, businessmen, teachers, and attorneys. Uh, one of the people right here was an, uh, uh, father was an attorney that this pastor reached. Um, he trained Mark Finley, Russell Burrell, Marion Kidder, Gary Gibbs, other well-known soul winners. The approach is useful not only for pastors, but for laymen. I was trained in this method and have observed its power, and I want to share it with you. This pastor was my dad. But just because you're Michael Jordan's son doesn't mean you know how to play basketball. Um, I well remember uh, my dad uh, answered an advertisement. We needed another refrigerator. And so I went with him as we <coughs> went to uh, a home to buy a refrigerator. And I stayed in the car and finally went to sleep. And it got darker and it got darker. And uh, I don't know when my dad came back in, but uh, as a result of buying that refrigerator, an attorney and the family became Seventh-day Adventist, and Kathleen Johnston is the daughter of the, I mean, uh, Kathleen uh, Sparks is the daughter of the attorney that was one. After my dad had brain surgery, he was giving Bible studies with his home health nurse. He died August 2002. Great men, letter 6B, 1890, Learned men can be reached, and how do, are they reached? Better by the what? Simplicity of a godly life than by all the sharp arguments that may be poured upon them. Human passions, vanities, and ignorance must be cleansed from the soul temple, and the grace of God become an abiding principle. Our ways, never. God ways, always. Now often people are afraid to witness to the great because they are afraid they do not know the arguments to support the truths that we believe. It is important to know how to present the truth persuasively, but it's more important 
to have a life that backs up the words. So if we would reach the higher classes, what do we need? A godly life. In a manuscript, number 19, 1900, typed on March 5, 1900, Ellen White titled this, A Perfect Ministry. Ellen White had been in Australia now for 10 years, and she had decided that she was going to live her life there, retire, and probably die there. She didn't know if she'd ever go back to the United States again, but she received a vision. After getting a letter from S.N. Haskell about some events that were happening in a camp meeting in Indiana, and she received a vision that told her she must get back to the United States because what was happening was a type of what would be happening just before the close of probation. And as she was uh, preparing to leave Australia, this particular material was so important, it was some of the final uh, instruction that she penned. It was first published in the Australian Union paper, and then it was considered so important that subsequently it was published twice in the Review and Herald, and finally included in Volume 6 of the Testimonies. Now, Volume 6 of the Testimonies is different than the other testimonies. Up until Volume 6, the testimonies were done basically chronological. But in Volume 6, it summarizes her 10 years in Australia. There were not any uh, other testimonies, uh, books given during that time. And what was different about volume six of the testimonies, instead of going through chronologically, um, it went through thematically. And she selected from the most important writings of the 10 years of Australia and it was included in this compilation um, as uh, one of the most important articles she had written in that 10 years. Now notice what it says in page 78. We talk and write much of the neglected poor. Should not some attention be given also to what is the next two words? The neglected what? Rich. Rich. Why are the rich neglected? She goes on to say, many look upon this class as hopeless, and they do little to open the eyes of those who, blinded and dazed by the power of Satan, have lost eternity out of their reckonings. Thousands of wealthy men have gone to their graves unwarned. Why? Because they have been judged by appearance and passed by as hopeless sub subjects. What is the appearance? Hopeless subjects. No interest in spiritual things. But it continues, indifferent as they may appear, they appear indifferent, they appear uninterested, they appear unreachable, hopeless, lost. What is the truth? This is the appearance. Here's the truth. God looks not at the outward appearance, at the, but what is he, where does he look? At the heart. I have been shown. What does that expression mean? Yeah. Ellen didn't invent what she was about to say. 
She transcribed it from what she was told by who? God. That most of this class are soul burdened. There are thousands of rich men who are starving for spiritual food. Rich people, what? Starving. We look around and we think of all the poor people starving and our hearts go out for them. Should not our hearts go out to the starving rich around us? Many in official life feel their need of something which they have not. They have everything except, like the rich young ruler, what did he ask Jesus? What lack I yet? The rich young ruler is a standard for how the rich people feel. They lack something, but they can't put their finger on it. What is it that I lack? I'll buy it. What is their relationship to church? Few among them go to church. Why not? They feel that they receive no benefit. Why do they receive no benefit? The teaching they hear does not touch the soul. The churches, you see, are failing them. They're failing them. And what is our responsibility? We cannot leave them to die of starvation. Shall we make no personal effort in their behalf? So our responsibility is to make a personal effort on behalf of the starving rich around us. This instruction, as important as it was, was not the first time God had called attention to, of his people to the vital importance of reaching the higher class. In a sermon preached March 7, 1887, at the Institute of Basel, Sweden, in Switzerland, Ellen White had just learned of the final defection of Elder Dudley Canwright. And though it caused her grief, she said nothing about this. Instead, she used it to motivate her to present a powerful appeal on soul winning. Seven years later, it was edited to become Manuscript 66, 1894. There has not been the effort made that should have been made to reach the higher classes. While we are to preach the gospel to the poor, we are also to present it in its most attractive light to those who have ability and talent and make far more wise, determined, God-fearing efforts than have hitherto been made to win them to the truth. Now notice, we are to do what to the higher class? We are to present it, not preach it. How are the poor to be reached? You preach the gospel to the poor, powerfully, convicting, preaching. The masses are to be reached by preaching. Preaching is important, but there is another group that will never be reached by the sermons that are preached however good they may be. Another group can be reached only by personal presentation, personal appeal, individual, one-on-one. -on -one. Who is to present it? We are. We are. 
Who are we to present it to? The higher classes. Now, when we say the higher classes, who are we referring to? What are we referring to? Those who have what? Ability and talent. How are we to present it to those with more than average ability and talent? In its most attractive light. Ellen White once wrote to A.T. Jones that some people couldn't give away $20 gold pieces um, by their manner of presentation, people would be suspicious and wouldn't take a $20 gold piece as a gift. How we present truth is every bit as important as what we present. In Special Testimonies to Battle Creek, number two, page 56, Ellen White wrote, My husband and others who were keen, noble, and true searched for the truth as for hidden treasure. Again and again these brothers came, brethren came together to study the Bible in order that they might know its meaning and be prepared to what? Teach it with power. Teach it with power. When they came to the point in their study where they said we can do nothing more, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon me and I'd be taken off in vision and a clear explanation of the passages we had been studying would be given me. And notice, read it with me. I've put it in uh, italics. With instruction as to how we were to labor and teach effectively. See, God didn't give us doctrines alone in this church. We were told how to present the gospel. Then she goes on, thus light was given that helped us to understand the scriptures, read the next four words with me, in regard to Christ, his mission, and his priesthood. Folk, this is the truth as it is in Jesus. Now, how can we learn to labor and teach effectively? It is the constant realization of the preciousness of Christ's atoning sacrifice in our behalf that qualifies us to point others to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We must become exponents of the efficacy of the blood of Christ by which our own sins have been forgiven. Only thus can we what? Reach the higher classes. See, there, there are two prerequisites if we want to reach the higher class. Number one, we must be sinners. But number two, we must have found the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And as we become the exponents of how Jesus has taken away our sins and forgiven them, and, and, and it works, only thus can we reach the higher classes. She uh, came up to me, and uh, I had been talking to her husband, who I knew well, friends, 
And uh, uh, so she came up to me and uh, shook my hands. And I, I said, you know, I may have seen you before. And she was acting as if I knew her well. And so I was pretending to know who she was, but I didn't know who she was. And finally I had to just out with it. Um, you know, what is your name? I'm trying to place you. And uh, she said, she gave me her name, and she said, this is my husband. And I could not believe it. Seven years ago, this person weighed hundreds of pounds, and now she was a shadow of her former self. And I just couldn't believe it. I was stunned. And I said, what happened? And she says, well, we're involved in a, a ministry, an important ministry, and I've realized that I was not representing Christ properly. And she says, I tried and I tried to lose weight. She says, I, I just couldn't do it. And finally, she said, I prayed and prayed and got the strength from Jesus. And she said, she says, I've, um, he gave me victory to lose that weight. Hundreds of pounds. Hundreds of pounds. When I had looked at her, you know what I thought? Hopeless. When God looked at her, you know what he saw? She can be a powerful help to me. And when I heard her testimony, you know what happened in my heart? I realized that there was probably hope for me in areas that I've struggled with all my life. See, God is wanting to give me power over sin in my life. Why? Because he wants my life to make it hopeful to everybody else. He wants my life to bring to others the same sort of hope that that lady's testimony brought to me. And he does it by taking the weakest areas of our life and show that his power can make them the strongest. Now, notice the three important aspects in presenting the gospel to the higher classes in the most attractive light. They need wise, determined efforts. Let's look at effort. Webster's definition of effort is the use of physical or mental energy to do something, exertion, a difficult exertion of the strength or will, an earnest attempt, something done or produced through exertion and achievement. But this doesn't say that far more wise, determined, God-fearing effort is needed, but what? Efforts, plural. Multiple efforts. And then it says determined. Webster's de definition of determined, marked by or sh showing determination, resolute, decided, or resolved. And wisdom is needed. Wisdom begins with the fear of God, Psalm 111.10. The story of Abraham explains what the fear of God is. Abraham had just offered his son as an offering to God. 
And God said in response, Now I know that you what? Fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You see, the fear of the Lord is complete obedience to his commands, withholding nothing in our life. If there's anything in our life that we're holding back from the Lord, if there's any sense, God, you can have this, but not this over here, we do not have the fear of God. Complete obedience. In wisdom, while it begins, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom continues with knowledge of God's Word. We begin by complete surrender to God. We continue by learning from His Word. But it ends in experience gained in prayerful obedience. Now notice what uh, we're told in Manuscript 14, 1887. They cannot do this work feeling that it does not much matter how they labor or what they say. They will have to sharpen up and be armed and equipped in order to present the truth intelligently and to reach the higher classes. No, no. So if we want to reach the higher classes, what do we do? Sharpen up, armed and equipped. See, wise fishermen know fish habitat, where the fish live. The wise fisherman understands the fish habits. He doesn't make the fish eat his bait. He plants his bait to attract the fish that he wants. When the fish eats, what the fish eats, where the fish likes to eat, we need to be wise fishers of men. In this work, can we be guided by the pioneers? No. Because we are told we must make far more wise, determined, God-fearing efforts than have hitherto been made. In this outrage, folk, you're the pioneers. Jesus told a parable about soul winning. Luke 14, 23, Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. What was the servant told to do? Go out. What was the servant told to go out and do? Compel those in the highways and hedges to fill the master's house. Now, the Greek word here translated compel is a word which means strongly urge, fully convince, persuade, entreat. We use the same word similarly when we speak of compelling arguments. Who is the master of this parable? God is. Who is the servant? I am. Where was the servant to go first? Highways. I have been commanded by God. Let's translate this into what it says to me. I have been trans commanded by God to do what? Go to the highways and hedges. He that heareth say, come. Now, what do the highways represent? This uh, volume 6 again, 78, the call to be given in the highways is to be proclaimed to all who have an active part in the world's work, to the teachers and leaders of the people. 
those who bear heavy responsibilities in public life, physicians and teachers, lawyers and judges, public officers and businessmen, should be given a clear, distinct message. How should we seek these influential ones out? Those who belong to the higher ranks of society are to be sought out with, notice the next two words, tender affection and brotherly regard. Now, what do we mean by the term higher ranks of society? This is Christ Object Lessons 230. She says, men in business life, in high positions of trust, men with large inventive faculties and scientific insight, men of genius, teachers of the gospel whose minds have not been called to the special truths for this time. When should we seek them out? She says, these should be the, what's the next word? First to hear the call. This is the secret Elder Loughborough forgot. This is Christ's frequently overlooked instruction in church planting and in evangelism. Please notice we're not presenting the gospel first to the higher classes because we want to be thought of as more, uh, uh, more highly ourselves because we're winning the professional. Neither are we presenting the gospel first to the higher class because they are more important to God. And certainly we're not presenting them to the higher class because they are more responsive. In fact, the reason this class is avoided is because they're not very responsive. Then why are we presenting the gospel first to the higher class? In a letter to, to elders D.A. Robinson and C.L. Boyd, the first missionaries to Africa, written June 18, 1887, as they begin to evangelize an entire continent for the Lord, Ellen White said this, plan to reach the best classes and you will not fail to reach the lower classes. You see, wars are more often won by capturing generals than by killing privates. Now, I was under conviction. I was studying this command and I knew I must reach out to those who appeared help hopeless around me. And I, I wondered, how should I begin? I would be with people in this category of higher classes. And I would think I need to say something, and I'd become very frightened. Uh, the words would choke in my mouth. My tongue would dry up. Have you ever had that experience? Nothing came out. But I drew courage from Scripture. The work to which we are called, Adventist Home 32, does not require wealth or social position or great ability. It requires a kindly, self-sacrificing spirit and a steadfast purpose. A lamp, however small, if kept steadily burning, may be the means of lighting many other lamps. While I was here at Loma Linda as a student, I prayed for access to a certain dental student. And within a week, I had my very first cavity. I, uh, I remember a well-known attorney in Wichita. This attorney came into my office, and you'd have to know this attorney. He was a very flamboyant man. He was the first person as an attorney to start advertising, so 
he was not really well regarded by the other attorneys because he had sort of started advertising. Now, of course, they all do it. Um, he came in with his beads and his, uh, his Hawaiian shirt, um, sandals. He had uh, been arrested for uh, disorderly conduct and, uh, and attacking his wife. He'd even spent some um, time in jail. Um, but uh, it suddenly dawned on me that, yes, he is hopeless, um, and who is it that they let me first practice on in, uh, in medicine? It was the people that I couldn't hurt very much. And how could I hurt this person? He's lost anyway. So I ought to talk to him about the Lord. And, um, and so I began to ask him a few questions, uh, whether he had ever had, ever had an um, experience with the Lord. It was not very good. I was not skillful in the slightest. Um, it was ragged and uh, rough in an approach. But it was my first approach. And you know what happened with this fellow? Tears came into his eyes. This hardened man. Tears came into his eyes. And he looked at me and he says, you know, nobody has ever talked to me about that before. Nobody. And although he never became a Christian, never, never became a member of my church, he was always soft for me. This hardened fellow is always soft. Finally, just before I moved from Wichita, maybe I'd say probably six months or so, he said, I am going to get uh, Dr. Mills. He was unhappy with, uh, I did a lot of, of medical legal work. And uh, he, uh, he says, Dr. Mills has gone too far. He wanted me to give an opinion favorable to his uh, point of view. And, and I felt I just needed to tell the truth. And uh, so he came down. He had a two-hour deposition all planned up. It was going to be videoed, and he was going to really embarrass me. As he walked in, I smiled at him and shook his hand. And you know what happened to him? I just saw his eyes melt. He asked me two or three questions. Stopped the deposition. It was over. Over. The second... Uh, attorney that I um, talked to and learned had an alcohol pro problem and uh, was uh, seeking to gain the victory and I invited him to my house in the evenings for a month. I told him that it would be a safe place for him to be, that uh, in, in my home um, he wouldn't have any temptation to drink. We studied the Bible together. He took me to a couple AA meetings. And, um, and ultimately, although um, we then went on to have Bible studies once a week, ultimately he didn't join the Adventist church, but he joined a Protestant church, and he married the person he was living with. She was also an attorney. And um, out of these experiences... I learned that I had to develop questions that could lead to a spiritual conversation, just sort of without them realizing it. For attorneys, here are some questions that I learned worked for me. 
I would ask them uh, maybe after a deposition, after we'd been together for a little bit of time and the work was done, um, often I would find that one would want to just hang around, and that was a clue. So I would ask them a question uh, such as, would you have taken Paul's case? I would tell them about there was maybe four million people who lived in Rome, a lot of attorneys, but to take Paul's case might mean the loss of their practice, the loss of their job, um, perhaps the loss of their life, certainly the um, displeasure of the empire, unpopular person. Of all the attorneys in Rome, not one would take Paul's case. Would they have, if they would have lived in, in the time of Paul, would they have taken that case? Um, another question, have you ever studied what the Bible says about attorneys? And uh, so um, one was a malpractice attorney, and uh, I had uh, uh, worked with him on a case not of malpractice, but a, a, a patient that he was representing had a certain type of neurologic uh, uh, problem, and uh, um, it was actually post-polio syndrome for our neurologist here. Um, and so I gave him the information, and as we became better acquainted, this fellow, who was about as godless as you could get, um, I asked him a question, but before I did, I said, uh, you know, since I knew he was a malpractice attorney, I said, I can't really talk to you, but there's something right here, but there's something very important that I need to ask you about if you know some information. And so he became suddenly very sober. And so we, I looked around and we quietly went outside where couldn't be uh, uh, overheard. And I said to him, I said, uh, did, uh, did you know, I said, I have some information. Did you know that there's a malpractice lawsuit pending against you? And, well, he knew all about malpractice, and he says, no. He says, I bet I know what it is. Is it such and such? And I said, I said no. But I said, I, th I think it might be serious. But I said, we can't talk here and can't talk now. So we put a schedule to talk about it uh, that Tuesday night. So he came over, and I gave him a study on the judgment. <laughs> and uh, he, um, he said, uh, he says, you know, Phil, he said, uh, I don't even know if there is a God. Why are you talking to me about God? So, so I said, well, tonight, um, we'll call him George. Tonight, George. I'm not going to talk to you about God. I want you to meet him yourself. I want to introduce him to you. And so we, we studied, had a wonderful experience with uh, that malpractice attorney. Uh, his wife uh, became a, a patient, and we worked closely with him. Other questions. Have you ever looked at Christ as an attorney? There was a, an attorney that I asked uh, um, when would you like to retire? 
found this was a helpful question as an opener. When would you like to retire? And he says, well, he says, I plan to retire at 45. He's a very successful attorney. And so I asked him, well, then what would you do? He says, then I want to be a financial advisor. So I said, well, you wouldn't be really retiring. You'd just be changing to a different, a different uh, career. And he says, yeah. So I said, well, then when would you retire? He says, well, maybe 65. Like to retire at 65. I said, then what would you do? And he said, um, I would like to be, um, I'd, I'd like to retire on a golf course and I'll play golf every day. And I said, that doesn't sound like uh, it would be too satisfying uh, in life, but no, I says, yeah, I think it'd be satisfying. So I said, well, pretty soon people get, I take care of people who are too old to play golf, then what do you do? And he said, uh, well, he says, I'd like to sit and watch it. And, uh, but he saw the direction. <laughs> So I says, you know, sooner or later, people aren't able to even watch golf and uh, they die. Then what do you want to do? And he says, you know, Dr. Mills, he says, I don't like to think about the then what. So I said, suppose that I came into your office and I was... Uh, um, you were uh, a, my attorney, and you said to me, Phil, you need to have a will, make a will. And I said to you, you know, I don't really want to think about dying. What would you tell me? He'd say, you must think about it, whether you like it or not. So I looked at him and I said, Steve, let me be your lawyer on this one. Let's work together on your will. We set up a time. He came over and for two years we studied the Bible every week. Went through uh, Kenneth Cox's series. But we came to the point he, he even attended a couple times. The church uh, we, but um, he had to make a decision. He was fearful that he would get a divorce if he became a Seventh-day Adventist. And I pled with him. As I say, I worked with him over a two-year period of time, pleading with him. Gave him all kinds of statistics. If a person, my dad had never had somebody who gave up the gospel to save a marriage, who saved their marriage. Never happened. And... Um, uh, but he would not. Uh, he w he would not change his mind. I'll, uh, if I remember it, and please remind me. I'll tell you the rest of the story later. Um, in our next uh, session. Last time I gave this, I said I would, and I forgot. So, don't let me forget. It's an important story. In a letter to the retired Southern Union president, Elder G.I. Butler, March 13, 1904, Ellen White said, this is what we do. She said, men in high positions of trust will be charmed by a, and I'd like to read these backward, by a statement of truth. 
They're charmed by a straightforward, I should say by a scriptural statement of truth. They're charmed by a straightforward scriptural statement of truth. They are charmed by a plain, straightforward, scriptural statement of truth. But I found it quite discouraging. There seemed little apparent fruit from the minister, from my ministry. Um, I didn't understand that, number one, I was a beginner. Number two, there's a difference between sowing and reaping. I have planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Those who sow in tears reap in joy. If we sow, it may not be immediate, but in time, what happens? You reap. And then an important third principle in working for others the question that I have to ask is, is the first soul saved my own? No sense to preach to others if we ourselves are cast away. Had the Lord reached me in uh, Testimonies to South Africa, Ellen White said uh, in page 33, the Lord will not bless you in bringing souls to the truth, clearing your way, giving access to many hearts, unless you have made it manifest that you are reaching the standard of character set before you in the gospel. What, the, what has to happen? If God's going to clear the way for us to have access to hearts, what must, be, what must happen? We must have, be, we must through God's grace be reaching a standard of character set before us in the gospel. You may be satisfied with your own life and religious growth, but then she asked the question, but is there growth in the mind and in the image of Christ? See, sometimes we judge ourselves, but are we ourselves judge? The question is not, what do I think of myself? The question is, what does God think of me? You should ask yourself, am I growing? I remember... I was four foot nine inches when I was 14 years old. I know what it's like to be short. And I would stretch as high as I could, checking against the chart, where am I now? Where am I now? And the question that must be asked are we growing in knowledge of Jesus, in love for Jesus, and in likeness to Jesus? You may sometimes be betrayed into indiscretion, and then if you repent and humble yourself before the God and give, and give Him your heart in humble penitence and say, lead me, guide me, O God, that I shall not offend Thee with an unconsecrated life. Oh, lead me, guide me, that I shall not offend thee. Folk, it's not only making mistakes. The just man falls, but what does he do? He rises again. He rises again. I was an academy student at Pioneer Valley Academy, and I was wondering why when I talked to my friends about winning souls, 
that I had so little effective outreach. And uh, uh, my friends would not seem to be any different after I talked to them than before. And so I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, why is it that I'm not reaching people with the power of your word? And um, it was uh, early in the morning before our, our uh, worship and before um, breakfast, and it was as if God said to me, he says, Phil, what time it is, is it? So I looked at my watch, and it was about 5.30, and um, I realized that we still had another 30 minutes before dorm worship. And uh, so about five minutes later, it was as if God uh, says, oh, say, Phil, by the way, what time is it? And I looked at my watch, and it was 5.30. I realized that couldn't be right. And then I looked closer, and I saw my watch wasn't running. And all that day, um, sometimes my watch was right on, and sometimes it was stopped. Do you, do you know there's nothing less valuable than a clock that's sometimes right? At least if a clock is stopped, it's going to be right twice a day. But if you never know, is it right this time, you always have to check. And God taught me the next morning, I realized what he was trying to say, that he was trying to teach me that if I wanted to be an influence for others, I had to have what? A consistency in Christ's likeness. It may be, she continues, that you may not have wisdom to guide the souls who shall embrace the truth. It may be that you have much to learn of how to present the truth as it is in Jesus. And should the hindrances be removed and the truth make rapid progress as you greatly desire, you would not be prepared to labor wisely, patiently, after Christ-like methods to lead them to obtain a sound, helpful experience because you have not the knowledge of many spiritual things yourself. And then she goes on to say this very interesting um, sentence. As you reveal wisdom by faithfulness in the home life, as patterns of piety, you will reveal faithfulness in the church as patient, kind, forbearing teachers. See, home faithfulness is where it all starts. Home is the test for whether we are ready for any other responsibilities. First the home, then the church, then the world, begin in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. Paul makes it clear that no deacons are to be appointed, no teacher or elder selected that does not rule well his family. If we do not have the religion of Christ in our home, we don't have it anywhere. And what God does is he gives us our home situation or roommates or wherever we are. He gives us that situation to prepare us for outreach elsewhere. When we have um, wisdom by faithfulness in the home life, the Lord will see that what? You can be entrusted with souls. Oh, I want to be seen to be entrusted with souls, don't you? And where, 
where can it be seen whether or not I can be entrusted with souls? My home. My home. You have learned lessons in his school as to how to deal with human minds and to lead them forward and upward to the holy standard of God that they may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we learn how to present Jesus in all his attractive loveliness to our wife, to our children, to our parents. We learn what works and what doesn't. And as we become skillful in those, um, shall we say, that's God's lab for soul winning. God's soul winning lab is my home. Um, you have learned lessons in his school as to how to deal with human minds. Um, and then God gives us greater responsibilities there in the church. Um, and as we learn these things, then we're ready for greater outreach. There were five reasons why I had little apparent fruits and discouraging results. We've looked at the first three. I was a beginner. I was sowing, not reaping. I needed to see that the first soul saved must be my own and in my own family. But there was a fourth reason. The higher classes, the professionals are a difficult group. For you see your calling, brethren, 1 Corinthians 1.26, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Nero, all heard the call. All turned it down. The rich young ruler heard the call. He turned it down. It was the poor peasants that heard Jesus gladly. And then there was a final reason I had little apparent fruit. Like Elijah, I didn't know how to count. Elijah says, I'm the only one left. There's 7,000. And God said, no, Elijah, you can't count. There are 7,000 who haven't worshipped Baal. And what discouraged me did not discourage Christ. Christ rejoiced that he could do more for his followers than they could ask or think. He knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories. Victories without any, any interruption, from victory unto victory, like Joshua fighting in Canaan, like David fighting in Philistia, uninterrupted victories. But notice the next phrase, not seen to be such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. Things will look so much different in heaven than they do here on earth. What seemed to be defeat and broken promises, what seemed to be among our worst experiences here, will there be seen to be among our greatest blessings. And I got a glimpse of this when I made a great blunder in my attempts to reach professionals for Christ. I'm embarrassed to tell you what an easily avoidable mistake that I made in my attempts to reach the professionals for Christ. I uh, questions an, questioned an attorney about whether he was a Christian. And uh, he said that his, uh, his parents were. And so I pressed it. I says, oh, I've had that same great blessing. I have Christian uh, uh, parents. Uh, did, uh, you be, did that help you become a Christian? And he says, well, he says, I went to Christian schools. I says, oh, I had that same great blessing. Um, it is a blessing. Uh, 
Um, did that help you make your decision for Christ? Did you make a decision for Christ in the Christian schools? And he says, well, he says, I married a Christian wife. And I says, oh, that's a great blessing, isn't it? Um, I, I, I thank the Lord for my Christian wife. Have you given your heart to the Lord with all those blessings, Christian parents, Christian school, Christian wife? Have you given your heart to the Lord? And he became very agitated. I realized, why would you press this? Why would you go on? And he grabbed his coat. It was winter. He grabbed his hat, and without another word, he just fled out of the office, stalked out, it seemed like to me. And there I was, sitting, embarrassed. I was so discouraged. I prayed earnestly for forgiveness to the Lord. I had done it wrong. And frankly, the next six months, I probably became the the most effective witness that I ever was, that I didn't say anything to anybody about, about Christ. I didn't want to drive another person away. Six years passed, six and a half years. I hadn't forgotten that bitter experience. And then I received a letter. It was a letter from, at that time, Senator Mike Harris. It was handwritten. He says, I've been meaning to write to you. He says, you won't remember this, but I was in your office six and a half years ago. And he just sent me this uh, picture. As a matter of fact, I told him I was going to be giving this uh, talk. Actually, I was giving this for ASI a couple weeks ago. And uh, he, he, he sent it to me. Um, he says, I was in your office. And he said, for three weeks, I had been running from God. Three weeks, I knew I needed to make a decision for the Lord. And he said, when I got to your office and you began to talk to me about being a Christian, I realized that if I couldn't go to a doctor's office and escape God's call, I couldn't be anywhere. He wasn't seeing me as a patient. We were discussing one of his cases. And, um, and so he says, I went from your office. I went down into the garage where my car was. And he says, I got in, and I kneeled, and he says, I, no, I bowed my head, and I gave my heart to the Lord. And he became a very outspoken Christian. He became a senator. He, he decided he wanted to make a difference in the state. He became a state senator. And when there was, a, well, one time I visited the state capitol, and he introduced me to the other uh, two or three Christians among the senators, and not many. And, and he said, this is the person that brought me to the Lord. Such a wonderful ex experience. Uh, our greatest defeats. Don't fear to seek to present Jesus. Don't fear it. Then um, there was a Sunday law that came up in Kansas. I gave him a call. He says, don't you worry about that, Dr. Mills. That law isn't going anywhere. Law not going anywhere. I'll tell you some other stories about it. I began to study with his partner every Thursday. He left. He went on up to uh, Michigan, and right now he's a judge there in Michigan. And uh, he came. He spoke at our uh, church actually when uh, uh, an attorney was baptized. Now he didn't become a Seventh-day Adventist, but he became a, a very earnest evangelical. Uh, Christian. Um, 
I learned some things about this. In reaching the, the, um, the higher class, make personal appeals only when you're one-on-one. -on -one. There's a different dynamic if there's anybody else present because these people are used to being leaders. And so when there's others, they will not be a follower. Um, and it'll change the dynamics completely. So you have to be quietly with them alone when you make your appeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I, could, uh, I could give you some other stor stories, but I think I will uh, uh, go forward. Never hide your Christian principles. Let your light shine before men. Utilize even secular public speaking opportunities. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, I often have an opportunity to give uh, talks on health and other places for Rotary. And, and uh, while this isn't the time to talk about the state of the dead, or the um, 2300 days or the mark of the beast. It gives you opportunities to just drop a word, even if it's nothing more than fearfully and wonderfully made, how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. Um, and those who are spiritual will catch a spiritual connection. In medical missionary work, um, the Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel of, in his, Ezekiel 44, it shows a, a um, river that flows out of the sanctuary, and uh, fish come by, and fishermen are on the shore uh, fishing in those fish, and you want to watch for people who are responsive to spiritual things in your conversations and, uh, and carry the conversation uh, further. Have fixed principles of life and of con conversation. First um, Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Do not be afraid to live like a Christian. I was a student here, and we were sponsored as medical students to a uh, Christian medical and legal society meeting. And so when we went up for this weekend for these uh, Christians, these were uh, non Adventist Christians that we were with, uh, medical students and, uh, and law students, I sat down by a a law student that was from St. Louis. And this law student, um, we were offered, you know, there was uh, food there, and um, part of it uh, I could eat, but part of it I couldn't eat. So if you don't have a fixed principle of life and conversation of what you're going to do, I would have expended all my creative energy 
um, when he asked me, are you going to eat this, uh, this uh, meat, I could have expended my energy, shall I say no or should I say yes? But by having that already settled, I could, cr could uh, cry out to God for creativity in answering the question to reach a soul for Christ. Uh, and uh, as a result of being a vegetarian in a, uh, as a medical student in a medical student legal meeting, the person next there asked some questions, they led to more questions, and ultimately uh, he studied uh, in St. Louis with uh, a Seventh-day Adventist and was baptized, became a, a, a Christian lawyer. And then eat and drink eat and uh, dress in public in a manner that invites questions. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now this doesn't say that we cram it down their throats. This says what? Be ready to what? Answer. Well, one more story before we take a break. I was at uh, uh, Wichita and just had started at, at uh, Wesley Medical Center as a physician. And in the first six months, the Lord brought the medical director. He's a really fine man, Obi-Jin, and now he had retired at that time, and he was medical director of the largest hospital in Kansas. One out of ten people in the hospital were at Wesley Hospital at that time. And so he was sort of trying to steer me right and protect me from myself and uh, the barracudas out there, and, uh, and he just sort of took me under his wing. And one day, as I said, about six months after I was there, he called me into the office, and he said, Phil, he said, and he looked at me very kindly, he says, you're pretty religious, pretty religious. And what I've discovered is it's better to go in professing what you are rather than try to get to that later. Um, Peter tried to hide his Christian principles. John didn't try to hide them and it stayed out of trouble. At first, they might be a little frightened when they see that you have Christian principles, but in time, they'll come to... Uh, if they... Uh, if they become friends, they'll come to just overlook that. That's just Phil. But he was trying to help me. He says, you're pretty religious. And then he began to tell me about some of the different physicians who'd been too religious, sort of fanatical and extreme. And, and, uh, and he didn't want me to have those sorts of uh, problems. So I said to him, I said, Gil, I said, I really appreciate what you're saying. And I knew exactly what had happened. I had prayed with a patient, and a nurse had stepped in while I was praying with a patient. And uh, so that had been reported, and, and so there I was. But I said, I said, uh, if, and sometimes I was in con conversation with the nurses about spiritual things. So I said to him, I said, Gil, if you want me, if you want um, uh, no nurses to talk to me about religious things at all. I says, very easy. I never approach them about it. 
But I said, um, if I'm asked a question, I will answer it. I said, that's, that's my policy. So you just tell them, don't ask me any questions, and you won't have any um, religious conversations out of me. And, uh, but I said, I must give you one warning. It's hard to be around me and not have questions. <laughs> and so, uh, so he, uh, he says, fair enough. And he got the word out because for another six months, I didn't get a question. And then they sort of forgot about it and got the questions again. But six months later, it was Christmas time, and uh, they invited me to a special banquet and, uh, for some of the physicians. And uh, I sat down right, uh, and Gil sat down right beside me. And they brought out the wonderful plate of gorgeous food, and oh, it was just terrific for me. You know, delicate, uh, Leah arranged fruits, and it was just a wonderful plate. And they had, you know, the flesh of dead animals. Oh, not colorful. And you could see everybody saw that I had the superior meal. And he looked at me, and he said, and suddenly I saw a knowing look come into his eye. And he smiled, and he says, Phil, do you mind if I ask you a question? <laughs> well, we want to start at uh, exactly at, uh, at 4.30, and we'll look at part two. We're going to take a, a 15, uh, uh, actually a 12-minute break, but let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to think about how we, in our weakness, can link up with the strength of heaven and reach others for you. What an amazing thing that you've made that possible for sinful mortals to reach the world for Christ. I pray that you'll bless us even in this break, that we may be becoming more like you and reach each other during these times. In Christ's name, amen.